Welcome to The Way Church. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For sermon notes, service times, and more information, check us out online at thewaychurchva.com. Now let's join Pastor Matt Rothy with this week's message. Everywhere you look, there are Good Samaritans, at least according to local news stations around the country. Just check out these headlines from just this past week. Indianapolis, Good Samaritan rescues 16-year-old boy who was shot in the leg. Kansas City, Good Samaritan injured after trying to help stop thief. Mobile, Alabama, Good Samaritan rushes into burning apartment building to save woman from flames. Pensacola, Florida, three Good Samaritans join together to help rescue seven people from a capsized boat. And right here in our own backyard in Springfield, Virginia, Good Samaritan intervenes to stop an assault. Good Samaritans are everywhere. And it makes sense. It's good to be a Good Samaritan. You don't need to have gone to Sunday school to know that. The parable of the Good Samaritan is used to encourage neighborly love and concern for those who are in distress and need help. People outside the church know that, and people inside the church have heard that probably a thousand times. The parable of the Good Samaritan is perhaps the best-known story Jesus ever told, apart from the parable of the prodigal son. But is that really the point of the story? Is the point really, be good, do good, be a hero, be the Good Samaritan? I hate to burst your bubble, but not only is that not the point of the parable, but using this parable to try to motivate people to be good, do good, well, it's dangerous. It's dangerous because that idea of legalistic and moralistic do-gooding in order to be a hero is exactly what Jesus was seeking to destroy by telling this story. How do we know that? Well, take a look at the person to whom and for whom Jesus told this story. Luke chapter 10 records it. In verse 25, it begins like this. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The guy was an expert in the law. Essentially, he was a lawyer who studied the Old Testament. He was the Jewish authority on the teachings and interpreting the laws of Moses. It's this guy who comes up to test Jesus and ask, what must I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus, ever discerning, asked the man a question of his own. What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? Oh, this question was right in the legal expert's wheelhouse. Of course he knew what was written in the law. Without skipping a beat, he answers Jesus. He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love the neighbor, your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. The lawyer, trying to trick Jesus, asked him what he must do to inherit eternal life. Jesus answers. 
He tells him, follow the laws you already know so well. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. You do that and you will have eternal life. Done. There it is. That's it. Keep the law, the whole law, and you will have eternal life. So why isn't the encounter between the legal expert and Jesus over quite yet? Well, you see, the expert in the law has an obsession, an obsession with the law that causes him to miss the cold, hard fact that he was completely, totally unable to do the things which the law demanded him to do. He didn't really miss that point. Deep down, he knew he couldn't keep the law, but he could not admit that he couldn't keep the law. If he would admit that to himself or others, he would have to admit that eternal life was something he couldn't attain by his keeping the law, the thing on which he had staked his entire life. So what does he do? He asks another question. A question which attempted to find a loophole in the law, a loophole that would allow him to hold out hope that maybe, just maybe, he could keep the law and inherit eternal life. He asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Can you believe that he asked that? I mean, are you trying to tell me that a lawyer, someone with at least average intelligence, could not figure out who his neighbor was? So why'd he ask it? Why did he ask Jesus this question? Well, Scripture tells us. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He wanted to justify himself. That's why he asked Jesus this question. He wanted to justify himself. And justify means to prove or declare right. This man wanted to prove himself to be right in the sight of God. And so there, standing in the sight of God Almighty, he tries. He tries to prove that he is right by asking God in the flesh, who is my neighbor? Oh, you see what's going on here, don't you? This man was not a fool. He knew who his neighbor was. But he was a fool enough because he thought that if he could just qualify the law, if he could find a loophole in the law, he could hold out hope that maybe he did, in fact, keep the law, and he could justify himself and have eternal life. But it's actually really sad, isn't it? On the outside, this man was squeaky clean. He was an expert in the law and appeared to follow all the laws. But you see his heart. Inside, this man was broken. He was miserable because he never knew if his rule following was enough. Outside, he flaunted a followership of God and, and even an attitude of wanting to justify himself. But deep down, he didn't know if he could do it. And that's why Jesus tells this famous parable. It's Luke chapter 10. We've read the first couple of verses. Here it begins at 29. But he wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan... 
As he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Looked after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Far from telling the story to help us become like the Good Samaritan, Jesus tells the story to show us how far from being like the Good Samaritan we actually are. Look, if Jesus had been asked, how should we treat our neighbors? And Jesus had responded with this story, perhaps be good, do good, and be the Good Samaritan would be an acceptable interpretation of the point of this parable. But Jesus wasn't asked that. Jesus wasn't asked, how should we treat our neighbors? Instead, Jesus was asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He was asked a vertical question, a question about what makes a person's relationship right with God. He was not asked a horizontal question, a question about how a person should treat their neighbors and those around him. The lawyer, remember, was seeking to justify himself. The parable must therefore be understood vertically about God's relationship to us. In other words, this story is about our justification, not our sanctification. That's why Jesus tells this story. And that's why it is so harmful that so many miss and twist, confuse and abuse the point of this story. It's because we are, each in our own way, all little experts in the law that, well, maybe we want to twist this story. Oh sure, we, we've heard it time and time again. Jesus is the one who saves us. Christ alone is the one who justifies us and makes us right with God. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, that I'm saved. My salvation is by no works, no merits, or no actions of my part. And yet, we're all little lawyers trying to find loopholes. We say, sure, Christ saves me and justifies me. But what must I do? I mean, come on, there must be something, right? I mean, who's my neighbor? Tell me, and I will serve them selflessly, and God will see I'm a pretty good Christian. Sure, I'm not perfect, but at least I'm better than most. That's what we say, and what it does, it, it makes all of us experts in legalistic living because we love seeing our Christianity and our spirituality as our own little DIY self-salvation projects. But what Jesus is saying in this parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan, is that to inherit eternal life, you must keep God's law perfectly, which includes loving your neighbor as yourself 100% of the time, all the time with no wiggle room. You must always love perfectly, sacrificially, and selflessly, not just on the outside, but on the inside too. That means you must, in other words, always want to love perfectly, sacrificially, and selflessly. You must never hurt anyone, physically, emotionally, relationally. You must always help everyone, physically, emotionally, relationally. Everyone, 
Love your homeless neighbor, your Muslim neighbor, your black neighbor, your LGBTQ neighbor. Love your poor neighbor, your Jewish neighbor, your atheist neighbor, your different denomination Christian neighbor, your disabled neighbor, your addicted neighbor. You must love them all. You must love them all as you love yourself and do it always. One missed opportunity, one missed step, and you're done for. That's the law. You must love perfectly. This is why Jesus' final call to the man at the end of the parable to go and do likewise drops a bomb on the man and drops a bomb on the idea that we can in some way, shape, or form justify ourselves based on our try-hard contributions to get our standing right before God. Jesus' last words to the legal expert to go and do likewise are not a word of invitation to be nice. Those are words of condemnation in answer to the lawyer's question, which implies there must be something that we can do to inherit eternal life. The parable is Jesus saying, you and I can't perform love perfectly. This parable is a word of judgment to each of us who try to justify ourselves by being a good Samaritan. You see, far from telling the story to help us become like the Good Samaritan, Jesus tells this story to show us how far from being like the Good Samaritan we actually are. I mean, did you ever notice that the Good Samaritan is not just good? This guy is amazing. Actually, he's perfect. This Samaritan is someone completely unlike anyone in the story or unlike anyone we typically see anywhere. Unasked, he stops to help. Unafraid, he risks his life and bends a knee to help on the road going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, where hijacks haunt every traveler. Undeterred, he ignores the significant racial tensions that existed between Jews and Samaritans. He shows a kindness that is unusual and unexpected and unearned by giving up his own supplies. Unforced, he steps into this man's life and not just for the minimum obligatory time. No, unconditionally, he shows a love sacrificially giving to the hurt man and the innkeeper, saying, I'll pay for whatever you need. Now tell me, who do you know in all of history and in all the world that acts like that? No one. No one but Jesus. You see, unforced, Jesus left heaven and he came down to earth. Undeterred, he went ahead, although he was attacked, stripped of his clothes, beaten, hung, left for dead. Unafraid, he gave up his life for you. Unexpected to many, he rose from the dead, although it was not unexpected to him. Unasked, he comes to us through his word, his supper, his baptism, and he bandages our brokenness. Jesus didn't merely spend some money and take you to the hospital. No, what he did is he emptied himself of all his blood into our veins. Unearned, he has had mercy on us and he gives us the shirt off his back, which clothes us with his righteousness, his peace, his promise, his hope, and his joy. Unconditionally, Jesus forgives us for all our sins, even our sins of self-righteousness. You may ask, what must I do? In Christ, every expense of your salvation has already been paid for. You may ask, who is my neighbor? But don't you see? You don't just have a good Samaritan. You have a good and gracious Savior, and that is your neighbor. 
The reason why using this story to try and motivate people to legalistically and moralistically be good, do good, and be the good Samaritan, and the reason why that is dangerous is because Jesus wants us to identify with every person in this parable except the good Samaritan. He reserves that role for himself. Jesus wants us to see ourselves as the priest and the Levite who never perfectly love even our best friends as ourselves. And then, in an ironic twist, when we naively think that we are good Samaritans, Jesus uses this parable to call us to identify with the traveler in desperate need of rescue. Jesus intends that this parable itself leaves us beaten and bloodied, lying in a ditch like the man in the story. We are the breathless and bruised. We are the needy. We are those unable to do anything to help ourselves. We are the broken, the beaten, and the robbed of hope. What's this parable about? Well, I'll tell you what it's not about. It's not about Jesus telling us how to be good neighbors or to be a good social family member or to be a good group person. You can't be that. Far from telling the story to help us become like the Good Samaritan, Jesus, Jesus tells us this story to show us how far from being like the Good Samaritan we actually are. Jesus' parable destroys our efforts to justify ourselves with God, and he smashes our little self-salvation projects. The story of the Good Samaritan destroys us. If we make this parable's point about us loving our neighbor, being generous, being unselfish, we're actually being selfish in making the story about us. Because that's not the point. Make this parable about you being a good Samaritan and you will be beaten up by the robber called self-righteousness who robs you of all the joy and peace and faith and love that you have in Christ. Make this parable about you being a good Samaritan and you will end up brutalized by pride and a legalistic life only to find yourself still, the one victimized and in the ditch of despair. Far from telling this story to help us become like the Good Samaritan, Jesus tells this story to show us how far from being like the Good Samaritan we actually are. But at the very same moment, that very same moment, he opens our eyes just to see how near he is. Christ Jesus is your God who is eternally with you. He did not just walk down a road riddled with robbers, but he went down the road which leads all the way down to the valley of the shadow of death so that now, even though you and I might walk through the darkest valleys, you and I will feel no evil. For we know God is with us. Unlike the priest and the Levite, Christ doesn't avoid us. He crosses the street from heaven to earth and he comes into our mess. He gets his hands dirty. At great cost on the cross, he healed our wounds, covered our nakedness, and to this day and throughout every day of our lives, he loves us. He loves us with a no-strings-attached love. He brings us to our heavenly inn where your room is paid for for all eternally. And his promises and the promises that he gives us of help no, they're not just simply a one-time gift. Rather, it's a gift that will forever cover the charges we incur. The expert in the law, he came to Jesus to justify himself, to make himself look good to God. The good news is you and I can't do that. You don't have to do that. It's already been done. 
You were justified. You have already been made to be good. Ah, no, better than that. Be right and be righteous in the sight of God. You were justified by your good Samaritan who is your gracious, great, grand, giving, godly, good Savior. That's Christ for you. But I do hear some of you. Some of you are still asking, Matt, you never answered the question, what are social families for? And you're right, I didn't. I didn't answer that because I wouldn't be surprised if some of you are still asking, what must I do? You're saying, okay, I, I know there's nothing I must do to inherit eternal life, but what about right now? What must I do now until I'm enjoying eternal life in heaven? Tell me, tell me what now? <laughs> well, this parable and the whole of scripture tells us. This parable in the whole of scripture tells us what we are to do with our days on earth and what all our family units are for. You and I, we are to care. We are to care for others, those in our social, spiritual, and relational families, but not in order to be cared for by God. We care simply because we have already been cared for by our most caring creator who didn't care about his own interests, but gave himself up for us. We are to love. We are to love others, those in our social, spiritual, and relational families, but not to be loved by God. We simply love because we already have been loved with an unconditional, unending love of our good Savior who loved us first. Look, if I can make a comparison, the Christian life and, and the Christian who asks themselves, what must I do now? Well, it's a lot like going through the drive-thru at Chick-fil-A. I don't know, has it ever, ever happened to you where the employee doesn't take your cash and your card when you go to pay for your meal, but instead they tell you the car ahead of you has already paid for your meal? <laughs> After getting over that initial, wow, amazing, a free meal feeling, well, at that moment, there's two feelings that can settle in for someone who has received such generous love. And you consider the question, Am I going to keep it going? Am I going to pay it forward? Am I going to pay for the car's meal behind me? Well, there are just two reasons someone in that situation, situation might pay it forward. One is because you feel like you have to, or at least you should. And there's a guilty feeling nagging you, especially if you don't do it. But the other feeling is simply basking in the wow, what love have I been shown moment. And because of that love and because of the joy which that love gives you, well, you want to love others in the exact same way. That love is not and cannot be motivated legalistically or moralistically or by guilt or fear or laws or rules. Now, such love as that is motivated only by love. That is the love of Christ. And this is the love of a Christian. We love because he first loved us. Amen.